16. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth but if the salt loses its saltiness how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. And our second reading is Acts chapter 3, verses 1 to 10. That's on page 884 in our church Bibles. Acts chapter 3, verses 1 to 10. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. Now a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, silver or gold, I do not have, but what I do have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognised him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. 
This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. In October of the year 312 AD, a man named Constantine had a dream, or perhaps indeed it was a vision. Uh, this man, Constantine, was uh, one ruler of a divided Roman Empire. Uh, he ruled pretty much the entire western half of the Roman Empire, from the city of York in Great Britain, across much of Western Europe, areas that today we'd know of as Western Germany, Belgium, France, Spain, Portugal. He ruled all of that, including even the northern bit of Morocco. But he wanted to rule all of it. That meant in the year 312 AD, defeating his rival, Maxentius, in order to become ruler of the next bit, the middle bit, Rome, Italy, and North Africa, the center bit of the Roman Empire. According to one person who recorded it, in Constantine's dream, he saw a cross in the sky and the words, in this sign, conquer. Constantine uh, responded to this revelation by instructing his soldiers to paint a new symbol on their shields and standards. The Greek letters chai and rho brought together into one symbol. In Greek, the first two letters of the word Christ. And so, encouraged by this dream, Constantine met one of his rivals, Maxentius, in the battle at Milvanian Bridge, just outside of the city of Rome, hoping to defeat him, remove his forces from Rome, and become uh, the, victorious in the next step of becoming Caesar. And on the 28th of October of that year, 312 AD, he was indeed successful, um, and he beat Maxentius. As just a, a quick aside, um, something that I'd love to talk about was whether or not that vision really was from God. What do you think? And if it was from God, what should Constantine have done with it, biblically speaking? And biblically speaking, what do you think it is likely to have meant in this sign, conquer? But I don't really have time to go there today, so maybe we can talk about that over morning tea or whatever. But getting back to Constantine, he continued his campaigns eastward, eventually becoming Caesar and Emperor of the entire Roman Empire in 324 AD. And he reigned as Caesar until his death in 337 AD. Along the way, he moved the capital city of the Roman Empire from Rome to Byzantium, a city located on that narrow, narrow neck of land between the Black Sea and the Mediterranean, a natural crossroads between Europe in the west and Asia in the east. And he renamed that city. He named it after himself in uh, 330 AD. The city became Constantinople, a name it would have for another 1,600 years, till, of course, eventually in uh, 1930, the city was renamed by the Turks, Istanbul, um, the name it has today. That moment in history, 
that dream or revelation is known to historians as the conversion of Constantine. And the impact of that moment in history is so very great that it would be difficult to overstate its significance. In many ways, the Western world, um, by which I mean in this context, the Western world, Europe and Russia, North, Central and South America, Southern Africa, Australia and New Zealand, the Western world has flourished in what some would call the Constantinian era, an era that continued from 312 AD into somewhere in the second half of the 20th century. This Constantinian era, era, which I will hereafter refer to as Christendom, has influenced many, many things, any number of things in very direct ways, including, for example, the design of the building that we're sitting in. Well, every year we take a short break from our usual diet of expository Bible preaching to have a look at some topic or another, and often it's a history topic. And um, this time last year, we looked at the period of history stretching from AD 90, the close of the New Testament era, to 312 AD. And we called that period the birth of Catholic Christianity. And we talked about and we thought about how Christianity moved during that period of time from being multiple, diverse, scattered little fellowships meeting in home groups across the western end of the Mediterranean world, um, trading letters and manuscripts. How it moved from that to a global, worldwide movement. Worldwide meaning right across the ancient world as it was known at that time. How it moved to be a, a group of shared beliefs, united by creeds, with one canonical Bible. And with an organized structure of bishops, priests, and deacons, Catholic Christianity. We saw how that period of time, the first 300 years or so, slightly less, but we saw how that period of time was a, a period of sporadic but significant persecution, with many, many, many hundreds, thousands of Christians dying as martyrs. For 300 years, it was technically illegal to be a Christian. But it was also an era of spectacular, miraculous, explosive church growth. On the day of Pentecost in AD 30, there were only 120 believers in the world. Some 300 years later, around 10% of the population of the entire Roman Empire was Christian, perhaps some 6 million people. That's a growth rate of 40% a decade. Astonishing. Well, insofar as last year's sermon series was called The Birth of Catholic Christianity, this sermon series is called The Birth of Christendom, AD 312 to 590. And we're going to look at such things as the development of doctrine, look at uh, where the doctrine of the, of the Trinity came from, arguments around that, we're going to look at some famous Christians that you may have heard of, like Augustine and Patrick, who we celebrate by wearing green on the 17th of March, um, if you're that way inclined. 
Uh, we'll look at the rise in something called papacy and monasticism, the beginning of monasteries. But let's get back for today to this man, Constantine. Now, when it comes to discussion about Constantine, one of the most popular things to talk about is whether or not this man really was a Christian. Was he converted at all? Was he really a Christian? On the one hand, from 312 AD onwards, he openly confessed some foundational Christian beliefs and he favoured Christianity in a variety of ways, as often as he could. He ended Roman persecution of Christians once and for all, and indeed he abolished for all time crucifixion as a form of execution, as well as stopping gladiatorial combat as a form of punishment. His sons and daughters were raised as church-going Christians. He bestowed tax exemption on Christian clergy, a benefit pagan priests already enjoyed, and in the year 321 AD, he made Sundays, the first day of the week, the Christian day of prayer. He made Sundays a public holiday, something that really basically continued in the Western world un until you know, my lifetime. And he gave generously to the building of magnificent new churches and church buildings. On the other hand, though, he continued to be something of a political and, and a military player, astute, conspiring, occasionally murdering his opponents. He also was pleased to retain the title of uh, Pontifex Maximus, high priest, as head of the state religious cult. And for the rest of his life, he was in many ways a practicing pagan, attending and participating in many Greco-Roman religious rites in which no Christian of his time would have ever dreamt of attending or participating in. And he never attended church. In the sense that we'd recognize it, he never placed himself under the authority of any particular pastor or bishop. Indeed, he understood all bishops to be under his authority as emperor, and occasionally he referred to himself as bishop of bishops. With respect to all this, he was never challenged, he was never rebuked, he was never corrected by any of the bishops. And there are probably two very, very good reasons for that. Firstly, you'd have to be unusually brave as a bishop to challenge Caesar. And secondly, Constantine wasn't baptized. So indeed, no, no bishop would have understood or recognized him to be a believer or, or a disciple, a, a Christian under church jurisdiction. For historians then, the irresistible question is this. Was he truly converted or was this some kind of savvy political move calculated to win the support of this new, growing, flourishing movement? And for Christians, it really boils down to the same question, Christians in his day, all through to Christians in our day, um, th th they ask the question, was this the best thing or the worst thing that has ever happened to the church? In many ways, those questions cannot be answered because they're the wrong questions to ask. Almost certainly, Constantine 
was not a Christian in the biblical sense of a person who encounters Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit through the hearing of the gospel preached and responds with faith, puts his trust in Christ, receives forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit in deep repentance and in desiring to live a holy life devoted solely to God, surrenders immediately to baptism and thereafter to discipleship. Serving Jesus Christ as Lord, God in charge of his life. In that sense, Constantine certainly wasn't a Christian. Rather, Constantine was a pagan who, at one point in his life, became deeply convinced that the God of the Christians was indeed the supreme God. And he responded to this conviction in true and sincere pagan style. He responded by favoring this God's people in order to uh, curry favor with that God, to seek his blessing, so to speak, on his life, which he fully intended to carry out living with himself in charge according to his own agenda. But he knew that their God was the supreme God. And so, quite openly and without any embarrassment, Constantine was happy to favor, to court favor with both Christians and pagans alike. He wanted to be nice to all of them. Making Sunday a public holiday was, characteristically for Constantine, an astute political manoeuvre. It was a win-win, because Christians liked it. On the one hand, it was their holy day, the first day of the week, the day that Jesus rose from the dead. But it was also the holy day of the God that Constantine's family had traditionally worshipped the day of the unconquered sun, the day for sun worship, uh, which is, of course, uh, where that name, Sunday, gets its name. So it was win-win. Pagans liked it, Christians liked it. But having said all that, it seems likely that Constantine, in fairness to him, was actually truly converted on his deathbed at which time he came under the authority and teaching of Bishop Eusebius of Nicodema, who baptized him. Um, thereafter, he refused ever again to put on his imperial purple robes. And so, actually, he left this life wearing his white baptismal robes. But what we need to understand for our purposes today is that from Constantine onwards... Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire, with Constantinople as its capital city, now of the Holy Roman Empire. So it all happened quick as a flash, socially and culturally. Only a moment before, figuratively speaking, Christianity had been illegal. Christians persecuted, many of them tortured, put to death. Now, suddenly, socially and culturally, it was pretty much essential to be a Christian if you wanted to get ahead, to be baptized and church-going, if you wanted to be included, get that job, career on the move. The church itself now looks totally different to how it had looked only a matter of years before. Gone were the house churches or simple worship rooms. Now, people wor worshipped in impressive basilica, Huge and ornate buildings modelled on imperial palaces. 
with an atrium, nave, and sanctuary. Uh, just to give you a little bit of context, here we're sitting in the sanctuary. They didn't get round to building the nave or the atrium because they ran out of resources in 1917. But now, those who were in charge wore elaborate robes, uniforms, and they processed in with choirs, as though they were emperors. And they incorporated into Christian worship pagan and imperial rituals, like the burning of incense was all incorporated. And in keeping with pagan practice, there was a proliferation of special feast days to mark this particular saint or to remember that particular martyr. By 380 AD, favoritism towards Christianity had developed into punishment for non-Christians and the prosecution of non-Christian beliefs and practices. In that year, Emperor, Emperor Theodosius made Christianity the state religion and only religion, all other religions now to be prosecuted. Well, what, what a turnaround, 380 AD. Um, his command reads as follows. Emperor Theodosius um, published this command. It is our will that all peoples we rule shall practice that religion which the divine Peter, the apostle, transmitted to the Romans. We shall believe in the single deity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit under the concept of equal majesty and of holy trinity. We command that those persons who follow this rule shall embrace the name of Catholic Christians. The rest, however, whom we adjudge demented and insane, shall sustain the infamy of heretical dogmas. Their meeting places shall not receive the name of churches, and they shall be smitten, first, by the divine vengeance, and secondly, by the retribution of our own initiative, which we shall assume in accordance with divine judgment. Uh, well, um, there's much in that statement, uh, in those words that will, of course, uh, send shivers down our spine. Uh, a, a lot there that will make us uh, shudder. Um, one of the things that we'd be horrified about, just horrified in terms of Theodosius's words, is that he assumes in true pagan style that the will of God and the will of the emperor are the same thing. That God wants us, first and foremost, to be obedient to the emperor. Um, we have here in St. Barnabas plaques commemorating those from this parish who fought in World War I. And right at the top of those plaques are the words for God, King, and Country. Of course, from a Christian perspective, that's profoundly perplexing. I mean, how can the interests of God and King and Country be conflated? How can the interests of king and country be conflated with or even allied to the will of God? How? But from a Christendom perspective, it all makes perfect sense. The will of the emperor can be understood to be the will of God insofar as the one thing God wants every person to, to do is to be obedient or loyal to king or emperor. A thoroughly pagan idea. 
and yet one with currency in the Western world until very recently, only a century ago. Another thing about Theodosius' words that will horrify us is the assumption that biblical Christianity is a religion. That it is something that can be practiced or even chosen or selected by the adherent. A thoroughly pagan notion. Even today, people will ask you, are you a practicing Christian? As if Christianity was something that could be practiced. As though it was a philosophy or set of rules. Of course, Christianity has religious content, insofar as the Bible gives true revelation of the nature of God, but to think that Christianity is a religion is to be trapped within some kind of pagan or Christendom mindset. A third nightmarish assumption is that Christianity can be reduced to an ascent to a doctrinal formulation. Theodosius' understanding of what defines a Christian is that they, quote, believe in the single deity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit under the concept of equal majesty and of Holy Trinity. And that doctrine is, of course, recognizably Christian. But it is light years away from the biblical realities of being spiritually born again. In Theodosius' world, you can be a Christian by choosing to assent to a certain doctrinal set of beliefs about God receiving the sacraments in proper order and then loyally supporting your local church and your national king and emperor. In other words, you can be a Christian who's never met God at all. All thoroughly pagan. But with Christianity adopted doctrinally, yet understood in Greco-Roman pagan terms, we have Christendom, the Constantinian era. I, um, I started my pre-primary education in England, and then I completed my pre-primary years in Sydney. Uh, both of those schools were what we would, we would call state schools. They weren't private, religious, or church schools. No, they were normal state schools. And yet in the early 70s, in the comprehensive schools of England, or in the state schools of Australia, every child learnt the Lord's Prayer and prayed it, together with their classmates in England every single morning, and in Sydney on Fridays. That's the assumption of Christendom, that everyone is a Christian, because this is a Christian country. We were Christians because we were Australians. The only remaining question thereafter was, what religion are you? Meaning, what denomination? Protestant or Catholic? And if Protestant, well, Anglican, Baptist, Methodist or Presbyterian? And that was a very significant question because it affected which box you ticked in the census and which private school you went to. When Billy Graham came to Australia, all he really had to do was tell people what was in the Bible, what it really said about Jesus, and that's because as Australians, everyone took the authority of the Bible for granted. Christendom. Was this the best thing or the worst thing that ever happened to the church. The Christians around in Constantine's day debated the same question. 
was the apparent conversion of Constantine, was that the manifest destiny of the Roman Empire, the salvation of the world, the, the kingdom now come? Or was it a disaster? The captivity of the church? Well, I'm not going to answer that question today. But hopefully, what I will now do is try to point out to you what's at stake. Christendom did indeed truly bring together a rather bizarre but fruitful marriage. The marriage of Greco-Roman literature and assumptions with biblical thinking and values. For nearly 2,000 years, the people of the Western cultural tradition went to school to get a classical education. In, back in England to start high school and back in Perth to finish high school, I went to two grammar schools. A grammar school is a grammar school that teaches you Latin grammar, although only one of those schools taught me Latin grammar. The Latin language, the Greek philosophy and legends, and Christian theology all brought together, that's a classical education. And out of that marriage came lots of good things, like, for example, democracy. The Greeks claimed to have invented it, but they could never make it work. Democracy, if it is going to work, depends upon a biblical view of the authority of truth. Out of that marriage came science. Yes, the Greeks claimed to have invented that too, but Greek philosophy could never comprehend or imagine an experiment. What you needed was Greek philosophical thinking, inductive and deductive logic, combined with a biblical confidence in a rational creation created by a rational God. Indeed, theology is known traditionally as the queen of the sciences for the very good reason that the natural sciences apply the methodology of systematic theology to the natural world. And out of that marriage came an understanding that all people are created equal before God. Not something, by the way, that the Bible teaches. What the Bible teaches is that all people are created in the image and likeness of God. But that idea that all people are created equal, that in turn leads to the end of slavery, the, the rise of the notion of universal human rights, and various forms of freedoms that we now recognize as part of a liberal democracy. Freedom of conscience, freedom from prejudice, freedom of speech, freedom of association, freedom of the press, freedom of thought, freedom of religion. Freedom of religion, in turn, means the free freedom to worship as we want, the freedom to change religion if we want, and the freedom to try to convert the consciences of others. That's what's meant by freedom of religion. All of this shared understanding, all of this coming from the notion that we're all Christians, that this is a Christian country, and that the Bible is our special book. But in some ways, actually, that's not our Christian heritage. It's our Christendom heritage. Based as much upon pagan assumptions about what it means to be a Christian as biblical assumptions as to what it means to be a Christian. And we're becoming increasingly aware of the fact that we're living in a post-Christian age. 
uh, in the middle of last century, being a pious, church-going Christian had credibility and respectability. Newspapers asked bishops to voice an opinion on the issues of the day, and people listened. In the 1980 US presidential election, all three candidates, Ronald Reagan, Jimmy Carter, and John Anderson, they were falling over themselves to show the world that they were born-again Christians. But towards the end of last century, most people, at least in the English-speaking world, most people were no longer regular churchgoers. Christ uh, children um, were still sent to Sunday school and or religious schools so as to learn our common Christian heritage and values. But their parents were sipping coffee or playing golf. And within only two decades since uh, the turn of the century, within only two decades, Christians have gone from being thought of as marginal and slightly ridiculous to being the enemy of social change. Amongst, uh, in our nation, amongst our young people today, teenagers and young adults, it is widely believed that Christianity is more than just mistaken in its beliefs, that it's actually evil, a negative influence on society. Th th that's the assumed truth that our young people will meet in their high schools and universities, that Christianity is evil as well as wrong. And indeed, in all kinds of ways, Christian values and ways of thinking are being formally and informally abandoned. All of those freedoms that I spoke of earlier, uh, freedom of conscience, freedom from prejudice, freedom of speech, freedom of association, freedom of the press, freedom of uh, loyal political opposition, freedom of thought, freedom of religion, there isn't another thought system in the world in which they are valued or even understood. Communists, Islamists, and most of our young people here in Australia have little or no regard or understanding of them. What's more important in their minds is the ideal. And that ideal might be Sharia law, or the authority of the state, or the ideals of identity politics self-actualization. To be sure, the LGBTQI lobby groups here in Australia, who without doubt have our parliaments, schools, medical authorities and universities all devoutly singing their tune, they have no interest or regard for freedom of thought, freedom of speech or freedom of religion. And they are as vehemently hostile to science as they are to Christianity. And that's because they need to be. Likewise, and generally speaking, our young journalists have no idea about being faithful communicators of objective truth. No, they want to be influencers, trendsetters, change makers. They want to stand for something. Yes, we are leaving Christendom. Or more likely, we left Christendom decades ago and we're only just noticing. But what does that mean? The Christians of Constantine's age knew that the church had traded spiritual authority for temporal authority. Yes, suddenly the church was powerful socially, culturally, and financially, and that did have its uses. 
but it didn't do miracles anymore. No longer could the followers of Jesus say, gold and silver have I none. No longer could the followers of Jesus say, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Christ, walk. The Bible makes a clear association between spiritual authority and persecution, poverty, ostracization, and weakness. If we want kingdom authority, we know in what direction we have to travel. On the other hand, if we want worldly authority, political, financial, social credibility, cachet and clout, chances are we're going to be next to spiritually useless. Knowing this history should now allow us to think about ourselves and our place in history in a new light. So many questions spring up. Um, perhaps I should start with the most searching one of all. Are you a Christian? Or are you simply a pagan who now believes in the supremacy of the God of the Bible and who wants that God's blessing on your own plans and agenda? What does it mean to be a Christian anyhow? How pagan are our assumptions as to what it means to be a Christian? Do we think it's all a matter of orthodoxy and orthopraxy, right doctrine and right practice, without actually having encountered the living God at all? And how, even if we are fully converted and one for Christ, sanctified by the work of the Spirit, obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood, offering ourselves to our Father as living sacrifices, how are we going to influence this world in which we live? This world that no longer considers a Christian voice to be acceptable in the public arena. Well, what does Jesus say? Do we even want to be influential? Was Australia ever a Christian nation? And if so, in what way? What errors might Christians make when they reminisce about a golden age of church political, cultural, social, and financial clout without realizing that we cannot really have that kind of authority and spiritual authority at the same time? Things for us to think about. Questions I cannot answer now. But the challenge of today, in a nutshell, is for us to check our frame of reference. And the Lord be with you.